Hi guys, Jimbo here. Uh, this is a special disclaimer that this is the special episode, uh, the Halloween episode from Hillbilly Horror Stories that they recorded and asked me and Terrence to be a part of. Um, so you will hear us in there. Uh, it is 3.5 hours long and I think it's right around 20, 21 podcasters. Um, so please go support them. Um, also, there is uh, some adult themes uh, in this. So if you have young children, you may not want them to listen or listen to it first before you uh, listen to some of the episodes. Uh, and lastly, uh, go support all these uh, podcasters. It's hard times, uh, or not hard times, but it's hard work um, editing and posting and doing this every week. Um, and we just do it because we love love podcasting and love, love, love doing what we do. So uh, from me to Jerry and Tracy Polly, thanks for having us and hope you guys enjoy this show. Welcome to our second annual Halloween episode. See, you would have to pay top dollar for those special effects smoke podcasts. <laughs> you're welcome. And you get that for free with us. So tonight, you're going to hear us tell a little story. It's a little ditty about Jack and Diane. You may have heard it. I was going to say about a man named Jack. Poor mountaineer, but he kept his family fed. So you're going to hear us tell a little story, and then we have a boatload of friends that are going to come on and tell some stories right afterwards. So hopefully tonight, you will learn about a bunch of different podcasts that you may not have heard. They'll be doing little miniature episodes of what their normal show would be. Go subscribe to every one of them. Every single one. But I have to interrupt you. Go ahead. That stupid song. What stupid song? Jack and Diane. What does sucking on a chili dog mean? That is just grosses me out every time I hear it. Why are you sucking on a chili dog? I have no idea. He obviously does not know how to eat a hot dog. Apparently not. And or just... he's got some severe daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. All right, let's keep this PG-13. As some of our shows probably will not. Okay. Everybody knows the story of the Headless Horseman and Sleepy Hollow. That's from New York up in the Hudson Valley. We live in Kentucky, 
And for some of us that live, especially in the Louisville area, we also have our own Sleepy Hollow. He's got one tooth. <laughs> it's Ichabod Crane. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> it's got its share of stories that come along with it. So I thought we would share some of that since most of you probably don't know that story. Okay. It's perfect for this type of, of uh, little 10-minute story. It's in a prospect area of Louisville. If you're, it's in way out in the East End. It's where the, the ritzy uh, people live. Yeah, it's the expensive part of town. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Sleepy Hollow is like a windy two-lane blacktop road. I've been on this thing. It's been years ago. But the most common story that comes from this one is there sightings of a black hearse. Now keep in mind that there is a cemetery right up on that road, so I guess. It probably wouldn't be too crazy of a thing to see a hearse. Well, on no, road. not at it's, all. It's actually a Herod's Creek Cemetery. Here's the thing, though. These sightings, though, are usually at nighttime. Not a lot of hearse out at nighttime. True. And it would be hard to see a black hearse at nighttime. Right. So the stories usually go something like this. So you're driving along and you notice some lights from a car in, the, in your rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. No big deal. But then this one starts speeding towards you. It gets extremely close to your bumper. Dude, I would be freaking out. So much to the point that it causes you to speed up. And in some of these cases, the cars kind of run off the road and down an embankment. And most of these cars say as they're kind of, you know, either running off the embankment or they're just getting their wits back about them, the car pulls up and passes them and it's a hearse. Oh, man. Would you freak out over that? I probably, yeah, probably. I was so freaked out. And like I said, I've been on this road, and and when I talk about embankments, some of these are like 30 feet down. I mean, it's like there's guardrails and stuff up over the steepest parts, Mm -hmm. but this is not a place where you would want to run off the road by any means. And another thing that these people are saying is they they lose time somewhere along the way. It's like, oh, that's interesting. They'll think that this incident took like 10 minutes and they'll notice two hours have passed somehow. So oh. they, they can't have any kind of uh, uh, recollection of where this time would have went. All they remember is the incident, which seemed like it was just a couple of minutes long. So this isn't people that actually went over a cliff or hill. No, it's, it is. it is, But I mean, they didn't die because it's it be hard for them to you know tell their story. Yeah. Well, no, I know. I'm just saying if they did go over the cliff or whatever, then they probably are... Uh, disoriented yeah that would cause yeah that would that would be a cause to feel like that you've lost some time but that's not what it is that is is, scary now the second most popular story is about a bridge it crosses height creek h-i-t-e creek Mm -hmm. there used to be a covered bridge there now now it's that it's like you wouldn't even call it a bridge now i mean because it's just like regular road with some guardrails Oh, okay. You know, that kind of bridge. Uh So it doesn't have the big girders and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But at one time, a covered bridge used to stand there. And some people say that there was another bridge even before that. We're going back to pioneer days. Off of that bridge, the legend says that mothers would come and throw off the bridge their unwanted babies. Now, some of these were children with disabilities. Some were from incestuous relationships, and some of the children that were just punks, little behavior, you know, bad behavior kids, 
that the parents just didn't want to deal with anymore. That's so awful. They just and the poor babies, they can't help that. Now, these babies or children would eventually find their way to the Ohio River because Harrods Creek and everything there all and Heights Creek all run into the Ohio River eventually. So legend has it that if you go there on a quiet night and the moon shining down on the bridge, you can hear the screams and cries of these children. Aww. But in a twist, you can also hear the cries of their mother who made the the horrible choice to toss the children off of the bridge. So then they're regretting it. They're looking for their children. For eternity. And last but not least, there is a section of this park called the Devil's Point. These rumors started in the late 70s, okay? But supposedly, there's a satanic cult that took up the area, uh, and you could basically hear and see like bonfires Mm -hmm. out in the woods you could hear these chants um, almost like you would if it was uh, Native American Mm -hmm. or but these kind of come across more of like a satanic chant and like a ritualistic chanting and screaming could also be here from there they said that the screams came from, supposedly, anyway, from sacrificial animals. And to top that off, plenty of neighbors have said that they've seen figures in hooded robes oh. roaming around the neighborhood. That's uh, frightening. It is. So anyways, that is our little story, our little contribution to the Halloween episode. Like I said, this is uh, Jerry and Tracy with Hillbilly Horror Stories. We, we got a lot of different... Uh, Podcasts are going to be playing the feed, so they may mm-hmm. be unfamiliar with us. Okay. But um, this is going to be a nice, long, creepy episode full of some of your favorite podcasters telling you cool little stories. So enjoy, and uh, we'll see you soon. Hello, fellow ghost story lovers of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Tony Bruschi from the podcast Real Ghost Stories Online and the Grave Talks. Jerry asked me if I would share with you a ghost story. So I thought, well, what's what's one of the best ghost stories that I have from this year? And this is a piece of one of them. It's an interview that I have wanted to do for so many years. And I've been asking about for year after year after year. And finally this year, I was I got a chance to, to do this interview. It's with Laura DiDio who is one of the main reporters who went around with Ed and Lorraine Warren and the Lutzes. And if you guessed it, you know what I'm talking about with the Amityville horror, when it was going on, when everything was happening, this is a first hand account. It's not hearsay. It's not, well, this person told me this is, this is what happened word for word first hand. What you're about to hear is an account of, the night called the psychic sleepover where the investigators went back into the Amityville horror house to investigate the paranormal activity reported by George and Kathy Lutz. Take a listen. The Lutzes started inviting people to go into the house that night. Mm -hmm. Uh, The folks at channel five invited uh, some of the folks, Another reporter from WNEW Radio, which was our affiliate radio station. Sure. 
the Warrens invited a couple of people. So all of a sudden, instead of it just being the Warrens and Channel 5, you know, we had a cast of about 20 people. Yeah. Which was not necessarily conducive to um, a great seance. <laughs> sure. It becomes almost a tour than it does a seance at that point. Well, yeah, I mean, I remember showing up that night at the house and it was lit up. All the floors were lit up and um, Alex Tanaus, who was um, part of um, he was part of a um, a psychic uh, New York Institute for Psychic Research in mm-hmm. Manhattan. Uh, he was um, he looked like um, almost like a vampire. I didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. and he appeared at the one of the side windows there. I almost jumped off the doorstep because <laughs> he had you know, a hawk-like nose, dark yeah. circles under his eyes. Uh, I was just so startled. And in that setting, yeah, it just adds to the the mysteriousness. I had of... no idea that all of these <laughs> extra people were going to show up. Sure. You know, the other thing that happened was that there was a switch on rep- of reporters. By the way, at Channel 5, the irony about the Amityville coverage on Channel 5, the only ones who were excited about doing this were myself, and Mark Monsky, Steve Bauman was not excited about doing this this story because he was a serious reporter mm-hmm. doing a ghost story, quote unquote, you know, could wreck his reputation. Um, oh, and by the way, what happened was he suddenly took off for a vacation in one, you know, in Bermuda in mid-afternoon. I didn't know this. Marvin Scott was pressed into service much to his chagrin because he and his wife had had tickets to go out for months to go to a Broadway show that they had, you know, was sold out for months with friends. Okay. So he wasn't happy. Um, nobody, nobody wanted, nobody wanted this. So, you know, <laughs> Turns to be one of the most so, infamous stories in the history of of ghost stories. Nobody, and nobody knew wanted it. To be yeah, this big. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When you're, as you know, when you're in the news business, you have no idea. Yep. You know, if you're going from one thing to another, after a while, it's especially in New York, it's just another murder, it's just another robbery, it's just another plane crash. Mm-hmm. That's the way you think about it. It's it's very pedestrian. So. Marvin, actually, when I happened to call the station that afternoon at two in the afternoon, two or three in the afternoon, uh, asking for Steve Bauman, they said he wasn't around. He had gone on vacation. I said, what do you mean? And at that point, Marvin had grabbed the phone and said, hey, I've just been assigned this story. Tell me everything about it. I know nothing about it. Uh, And he was he was pretty ticked off, you know, because his wife was ready to divorce him. All the late nights, and now you're now you're you're basically cutting out on. We've we've had these 
tickets that it took us months to get. And I've been wanting to go to this Broadway show for months. It's been sold out. And now you're you're canceling on us. To go to a haunted house. So, yeah. <laughs> I know, for a haunted house. Yeah. And, and at that point, it was not that big a story. Sure. Again. So um, when we, you know, we got there and, you know, more and more people were, sh- were showing up. Mm-hmm. So um, it was... Uh, it was quite, um, you know, it was quite, quite the, um, quite the thing. And then what happened, unfortunately, um, when we did the seance itself, after the seance in the, with the, and we had all of these psychics there that, Lorraine had invited. We had one of the psychics ran out of the room, um, screaming, saying, "It's in the it's in the second floor bedroom." Somebody else ran out and got sick on the front lawn. I was sitting in between Marvin Scott and Mike Linder, and all of a sudden, at one point, Marvin said to me, "Hey, I just felt a chill," and then five minutes later. Mike Linder said to me, hey, I just felt a chill. Now, in the ensuing years and decades since, when Marvin has talked about it, he says, yeah, at one point during the seance, I felt a little chill. I can tell you that night when Marvin felt the chill, he didn't say, yeah, I felt a little chill. He says, hey, I just felt a chill. Yeah. Um, And Marvin has always said he did not, uh, he's felt more afraid watching the movie when the Amityville Horror came out, uh, more afraid with all the kids throwing popcorn and smoking pot in the theater. Um, but the one, the, one of the things that happened that night of, of March 6th when we got there uh, that really struck me, um, and everybody admitted this, was that our... Cameraman Steve Petropoulos. He was about forty. He was slim, and in those days, you had a three-man film crew: cameraman, sound guy, and the lighting guy. And the equipment was much bigger and heavier in those days. So the cameraman, those guys had to be in shape. Steve Petropoulos was based in in New Jersey, and again. It wasn't a huge story, and he was he was one of our um, he wasn't one of our regular staff camera guys. He was one of our regular like fourth or fifth guys, so he was a regular stringer for us. Mm-hmm. So um, the camera guys, uh, the film crew arrived at about ten o'clock, and they. Um, Steve Petropoulos started to walk up the stairs to the second floor. That was where everybody, um, you know, started. There was one spot at the second floor landing where people felt things. But Steve walked up. um, Steve and I were chatting at the foot of the stairs, and I was introducing him to the different psychics. Um, 
he so Steve says, I'll, I'm going to take a look around. And he started to walk up the stairs, and he, he got five steps up, and he said to myself and Alberta Riley, she was one of the other psychics that Ed and Lorraine Warren had invited, he, he turns around and he says, there's a room on the second floor, the second door on the right, he says, and it's filled with mirrors. And he said to me, I don't know how I know that. Now, I had been in the house before, the week before. That was the, mas- that was the master bedroom. That was the DeFeo's bed, you know, Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr.'s bedroom, where they had been shot. I get the chills every time I hear about the Amityville Horror. It is a case that has fascinated me since childhood. There is much more to this interview. She goes into much more detail. If you'd like to hear the full thing, subscribe to my podcast, The Grave Talks. You can get it wherever you download podcasts. My other podcast, Real Ghost Stories Online. We talk about all this stuff on there as well. Jerry, Tracy, thank you for having me on and letting me share some of my favorite ghost story of the year. I'm Tony Bruschi. Happy Halloween, everyone. Halloween. This is Diane Student of the History Goes Bump podcast, wishing a very happy Halloween to Jerry and Tracy Polly and all of their listeners. I'm a big fan of cemeteries, so I want to tell you a story about a cemetery from right here in my home state, of Florida. This cemetery I want to tell you about is called the Boca Raton Cemetery, and it's named for the city where it's located. Boca Raton is kind of down near southern Florida, closer to Miami than it is to me in central Florida. It has beautiful beaches and a lot of Spanish-style architecture. The Boca Raton Cemetery is the only cemetery that is currently still operating in this city. It's a beautiful cemetery, and it has a wonderful mausoleum located there as well. I know of two ghosts that are reputedly in this cemetery. One of the spirits here is of a child. It's a little girl about the age of 13, and she's known as Little Mary. It's believed that she died from some kind of illness. She's been seen inside of the mausoleum, walking up and down the hallway. Sometimes she's outside, sitting on a marble bench. And one man claims that when he went to go visit the burial of his wife, He caught a vision of this little girl. She was dressed in a maroon-colored dress that had white sleeves. She was kneeling in front of a tombstone, and when she saw that he noticed her, she smiled at him, and he felt like she was very friendly and comforting. The other spirit that's here is a bit chilling and not very friendly. As a matter of fact, his nickname is The Screaming Man. This isn't a haunting that dates back very far. The first reports of this were in 1991. Someone was inside the mausoleum, and all of a sudden they heard these very painful cries. And they went running around to see who is crying out in this way. Someone must have fallen and hurt themselves or be in some kind of distress. This person searched all over the mausoleum and found no one. They run outside. Maybe the person had gone out there. No one was anywhere. The person went and told the cemetery staff, and they put it in the back of their minds and really didn't think much about it. But then they started getting more and more reports, and they started hearing more things than just someone crying out in pain. They were hearing about this disembodied cries and screams and cursing 
against God. There was this sobbing that would get louder and louder and louder. Most of the reports would happen when people were visiting the cemetery in the early morning hours. One of the most interesting stories about the Screaming Man comes from a park ranger. The rangers are in charge of patrolling the cemetery and making sure that everything's in order. So he was out on one of his patrols. It was about 2.45 in the morning. He parked his car along the cemetery's road and he got out and started walking around. As he approached the mausoleum, he could hear this really strange crying. He stopped, unsure of what he was hearing, and then he was like, nope, that sounds like a human crying. It doesn't sound like any kind of an animal. So he started walking quickly towards the mausoleum because he thought he was going to be catching someone who either was in there and shouldn't be in there, or maybe he was going to be going in there and helping somebody who was having some kind of distress also. So he gets to the front entrance, and he notices the sobbing and the cursing that he's hearing seems to be getting further and further away from him. So he assumes that whoever is inside the mausoleum is moving deeper into it. Now, I don't know if he was a little bit afraid or not, but he decided to return to his car and continue his patrol using his spotlight. He wasn't about to go into that dark mausoleum and search for whoever was in there. As he starts to walk away from the mausoleum, he notices that the sobbing gets louder and louder. So he's thinking, this is strange. As I got closer, it went away. Now that I'm getting further away from the mausoleum, it's getting louder again. He quickly turns around because he thinks, I'm going to bust whoever this is. As he does, he can see some kind of a dark, shadowy figure standing in the corridor, slightly illuminated by a streetlight that was across the way. This wasn't just some kind of shadow figure that was standing there. It was flailing its arms around as if it was in some kind of a frenzy, and he could hear these tormented cries coming from it. Needless to say, he turned around and ran to his car. As he reached his car, he took one more look back, and he saw this shadowy figure go from one part of the mausoleum to the other, and it was still waving its arms and shaking its hands around. He decided to call the police and have them investigate. They found nothing. The park ranger said he never heard or saw the screaming man again, but he will never forget that. One of the last times that the screaming man was heard was during Tropical Storm Gordon, which happened in November of 1994. These angry screams and cries were heard coming from the mausoleum. And in case you are wondering how loud was this screaming, we have a hurricane going on here. Nobody's in the cemetery and these guys in an apartment near the cemetery are hearing the screaming man. They, of course, think that somebody's in danger, they're out in this storm, maybe they should go help this person. So they go out in the storm, they walk over to the mausoleum, as they get closer to it, the crying seemed to go away, kind of the same experience of the park ranger. They looked all around and found no trace of anyone. There are people to this day that claim that anytime you are near that mausoleum, and there's a thunderstorm brewing, or it's a moonless night, you will hear the wails and cries of the screaming man. Happy Halloween! Hi everyone, I'm Jess, and I host the podcast Shoes, Booze, and Tattoos. I like to talk about a little bit of everything that's out of the ordinary, from hauntings and folklore to true crime and history. I'm also a practicing witch so I do make it a point to dedicate an episode here and there specifically to the craft. 
when it comes to the subject of witchcraft. I do get a lot of questions, and there are quite a few misconceptions out there about witchcraft, so I'll answer some of the most common before we get started. Number one, no, I do not worship the devil. Number two, no, I cannot shoot sparks from my fingertips. And number three, no, I cannot turn your ex into a toad, no matter how much they deserve it. Now that that's out of the way, there is one question I get that does have a more complicated answer simply because of the history behind it. Can you fly on broomsticks? The short answer is no. However, when we think of the classic depiction of witches and how they're still thought of as today, we see a woman, whether it's an ugly old hag or a beautiful young woman twitching her nose, is up to the person visualizing this, but we always think of them gliding through the autumn night sky on a broom. Have you ever wondered why? A quick warning for those listening, the explanation of this does involve some things that might be triggers, including hallucinogenic drug use, and some explanations do involve a more sexual element that some parents may not be comfortable with children hearing. There are a lot of working parts to this, and some scholars actually disagree on some of this. But there is a belief that women who practice witchcraft used something called flying oil or flying ointment to, quote, fly. Now, in my experience, this isn't the kind of flying you're thinking of. This kind of flying, your body doesn't actually leave the ground But with the traditional flying ointment, the person using it essentially gets high as a kite. Using flying oil is believed to aid in astral travel and assisting in the act of your spirit leaving your physical body to go out into the world on its own, able to return at any time. So let's start with how this flying oil was traditionally made. That does depend on who you ask. Someone that probably all of you have heard of, Sir Francis Bacon. He wrote about flying ointment, and his description of the ingredients is, well, a little bit off. He describes flying ointment being made with the fat from children who had been recently dug from their graves, smallage, now we just call this celery, wolfsbane, and sink. This is actually a weed that grows in your yard in the spring or early summer, sometimes referred to as barren strawberry. So this isn't exactly right, as you could probably guess. The fat of children isn't used. (laughs) To make this ointment, usually beeswax or animal fat, or a combination of the two, was used. Both of these are ingredients that were also common in making other salves, candles, and even soap making. Next. I'm not sure if celery would actually help this process, but traditionally, herbs and plants like belladonna, henbane, jimson weed, black henbane, hemlock, and wolfsbane, which was mentioned before, so Sir Bacon got that one right. All of these plants are poisonous. Most of them contain something called atropine, hyoscamine, or scopolamine. These are chemicals that are naturally occurring in these plants that can cause everything from the effect of a muscle relaxer to psychotropic effects when absorbed through the skin. 
basically some of these plants can actually make you go on a psychedelic trip where you're not sure what's real and what's not. The big controversy with scholars comes to how this ointment was applied. There have been quite a few books published that include bits about this subject, a few of which have some passages that greatly impact the thought or theory about how these witches use the flying ointment. The three most recognized, or the ones I think had the most significant impacts on this thought, are by Eric Hess, Jordans de Bargemot, and Thomas Wright. I'm going to take a couple of quotes right from these publications. The first is from Eric Hess. The hallucinations are frequently dominated by the erotic moment in those days in order to experience these sensations. Young and old women would rub their bodies with the witch's salve. Next, from Jordan de Bargemil. The witches confess that they anoint a staff and ride on it to the appointed place or anoint themselves under the arms and in other hairy places. The last is from Thomas Wright. In rifling the closet of the lady Alice Keitler, a suspected witch, they found a pipe of ointment wherewith she greased a staff upon which she ambled and galloped through thick and thin when and in a manner she listed. Now, there are hundreds of other publications that detail witches applying this flying oil to places where it would be easily absorbed, usually on or near mucous membranes. I know what you're thinking. You think mucus and you think the nose. It's not where we're going with this one. If you're thinking lady bits, you'd be right. The theory is that this ointment and its psychotropic effects would be best absorbed near the vulva. We see in our minds the witch riding the broomstick. We don't typically think of them as riding side saddle. It is thought that witches would rub this ointment onto the handle of the broom, place it between their legs in order to transfer that ointment to the vulva. Some believe that the handle of the broom was used more as a phallic tool in order to transfer the ointment into the vagina. Really, either is possible, but when these plants take effect, you relax, and again, depending on who you ask, you fly. There were a lot of bishops and clergymen all the way up until the early 20th century that thought using this flying ointment would essentially make it easier for these witches to communicate with the devil and then physically fly. Majority of people that have studied this believe that you either just hallucinate or your spirit is able to detach itself from your body and go on a journey of its own, leaving your physical body in a comatose-like state. Nowadays, a lot of practitioners don't feel comfortable using these poisonous plants. So alternatives are used that are considered non-toxic and safe. This new oil is usually made up of a combination of sandalwood, mugwort, and bay leaves, steeped in a carrier oil, like olive oil, or sweet almond oil, usually for a few weeks, and now it is advised to avoid those mucous membranes. 
So now you know the reason that a witch is usually depicted as riding a broomstick through the sky. I hope that this was an interesting learning experience for you, and if you'd like to know more about some of the common misconceptions about witchcraft, or have an interest in some haunted places or true crime, you can find shoes, booze, and tattoos, and that's booze spelled B-O-O-S, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you all soon. Bye! I'm Jimbo, and this is my co-host Terrence. Hello. And we are the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, a weekly podcast that reviews older movies and gives facts, unknown facts, trivia, and our opinions on those movies. So Jerry from Hillbilly Horror Stories had asked us to do a quick segment of our show, so we took uh, the original Halloween and condensed it down to a smaller version just to give you guys um, a better idea of what we do each and every week. So, like a Terrence, snapshot of kind of how we go. A snapshot. <laughs> and Terrence, why don't you go ahead and take us away and start us off with right. Halloween. So, Halloween. The release date for Halloween was October 27th, 1978. So, right before Halloween. Which is how nice. perfect. Exactly, right? Perfect release date. Uh, budget, we're looking at uh, 3025 estimated. Uh uh, sorry, three hundred twenty-five thousand. Uh, gross USA, it made forty-seven million. So it definitely made its money back, almost tenfold. Right? Uh, it made a lot of money. It was it was a success. Uh, this was directed by the John Carpenter, who's famous director goes without saying. Right? Uh, writing credits goes to John Carpenter for the screenplay, screenplay, and Deborah Hill. Also, uh, for the screenplay, the technical specs, we're looking at an hour and a half movie with sound mix and mono. Uh, this was filmed using the camera Panavision Panaflex and Panavision C-series lenses, uh, which typically goes hand in hand with the aspect ratio of 2.39 by 1. Uh, its film length was 2,484 meters, which, a uh, little fun fact, that is basically how long the the film is itself and that consists of 3000 foot you know those big film uh rolls that you see in our uh little image uh for our podcast and in, in you know typical uh, older movies when they're like let's let's bury the movies away and you'll just see a bunch of films just <laughs> from you know, the vault yeah exactly into the vault uh negative format 35 millimeter which was popular type of uh, size of film to film movies on and some of the graphic process panavision anamorphic that just basically means it was ride screen and they use panavision lenses and then finally my favorite part the awards so i'm just going to name off a couple of these uh they were nominated for the in the academy of science fiction fantasy and horror films 1979 for best horror film uh, didn't win but they were nominated uh in the Chicago International Film Festival, 1978, 
They were nominated for a Gold Hugo for Best Feature by John Carpenter. Los Angeles Film Critics Association Awards, 1979. They won a New Generation Award. John Carpenter won that. And that is it for the awards. Now, off to the synopsis. On Halloween night in 1963, young Michael Myers murders his sister. Now, 15 years later, Michael has escaped from the mental hospital and returned to Haddonfield, Illinois, to kill once again. Right, so we'll go ahead and jump into the little bit of the cast. Um, as I said, this is just a clip. Of, there's a lot more we cover on the final version of this. Oh, yeah. So um, we had Donald Pleasance uh, as Dr. Sam Loomis, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, Nick Castle as Michael Myers and The Shape. They called him The Shape in the credits. Really? Right. The Shape. The Shape. Huh. Uh, Tony Moran as Michael Myers unmasked when he was unmasked. And Will Sandon as young Michael Myers at the age of six. So a little bit of the fun stuff that I get to do. I get to tell some of the lesser known facts, maybe some trivia that people may or may not know about the film. And then we get to have fun banter about it. Right. <laughs> John Carpenter considered the hiring of Jamie Lee Curtis as the ultimate tribute to Alfred Hitchcock, who had given her mother, Janet Lee, legendary status in the film Psycho from 1960. And oddly enough, we talked about this very fact we in did. reverse when we went over that Psycho. That was our second episode, Psycho. Now, this is one of the ones that I found the most fascinating, talking about the mask. It was revealed that the crew had two masks to choose from. The first was a Emmett Kelly smiling clown mask that they put frizzy red hair on. <laughs> this was a homage to how he killed his sister Judith in a clown costume. They tested it out, and it appeared very demented and creepy. I mean, clowns are just <laughs> creepy in general. So. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the other mask was a 1975 Captain James T. Kirk mask that was purchased for around a dollar. It had the eyebrows and sideburns ripped off, the face was painted fish belly white, and the hair was spray-painted brown, and the eyes were opened up more. They tested out the Kirk mask, and the crew decided that it was much more creepy because it was emotionless. This became known as the Michael Myers mask. Hmm. Also considered for the mask roles was Richard Nixon and <laughs> Spock were also what? considered... Uh, the stabbing effect, as seen in most of these movies, is a knife stabbing a watermelon. So yeah. you can hear the... <laughs> it's actually I'm the just watermelon. trying to imagine the whole movie with... Richard Nixon. <laughs> Richard Nixon. <laughs> he is not a crook. He might be a criminal, but he's not That's a crook. A fun, fun little thing, when, when you said the clown one, um, I feel like something that was inspired by Halloween was later on, uh, there's a video game called Twisted Metal, and there's this crazy clown. Same backstory, like he kills his family, super demented and all that stuff. But, you know, that's sort of almost the clown route of, of this, which I think is interesting. Uh, but, yeah, it would have been a completely different feel of the movie if they did it in a clown mask right. instead. Uh, the story is based on the experience John Carpenter had in college touring a psychiatric hospital. Carpenter met a child who stared at him with a look of evil, and he said it terrified him. <laughs> there you go. Halloween was shot in just 20 days in the spring of 1978, made on a budget of only $300,000. It became the highest-grossing independent movie ever made at that time. So, wow, this is an indie movie of all things. Right. And even Jamie Lee Curtis and all of them had to go do their own shopping, so she went to JCPenney, and she got her whole wardrobe for the entire movie for only $100. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, John Carpenter also approached Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee to play the role of Dr. Sam Loomis that was eventually played by Donald Pleasance, but both turned down due to the low pay. Lee later said it was the biggest mistake he had ever made in his career. Uh, yeah. And that is fantastic because <laughs> some of the roles that that guy has played, I mean, you're talking 
major yeah. major roles. Big 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 roles. Um, this is this is not necessarily. This is kind of funny. It says the dark lighting from the movie comes from necessity. The crew didn't have enough money for more lights, <laughs> so the creepy dark feeling is actually due to budgetary reasons. That's but hey, hilarious. it worked out perfectly. Yeah, I mean, it's a happy little accident. And also, the uh, there was actually five different people who dressed as Michael Myers for this film. Nick Castle, who is seen throughout the movie as most know, Tony Moran during the unmasking by Laurie. Stuntman James Winburn, um, production designer Tommy Lee Wallace, he was in there due to his knowledge of how much force it would need to break props during action shots in a single take, since they didn't have a lot of money to yeah. do multiple takes. That makes sense. And the one that I found the funniest, co-writer and co-producer Deborah Hill <laughs> in the external wide shot when Tommy sees the shape for the first time. So Michael Myers is actually portrayed by a woman. Oh, wow. For the first time you see him in the wide shape. Uh, she said uh, she didn't expect to be in it, but she just happened to bring the costume with her that day, and no one else was available for the shot. <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" I think it's interesting that there's a handful of like you know costume creatures and horror and stuff like that that are portrayed by multiple people, right? But that one, that one, that one really shocked me. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go did, back yeah. and check that one out. And last but not least, Robert England of Nightmare on Elm Street fame uh, revealed in an interview that John Carpenter had him throw bags of dead leaves on set for one day. <laughs> so Freddie was throwing leaves for Michael Myers. That's great, right? So there you have it. That is our uh, just a little tad of what we do. Um, you can catch the full version of this show Halloween. Uh, we plan on releasing it Halloween night this year. Yep. Um, so I want to th- say thanks again to Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and I want to say Happy Halloween to everybody, all the hillbillies out there. Thanks. And if you like what you hear, go subscribe to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast. And have anywhere, a spooky October. <laughs> anywhere podcasts are available. Hi everyone, I'm Nate Hale, host of The Conspirators, the show in which I take my listeners on a journey into some of the darkest and strangest stories from history. I just wanted to take a moment to thank Jerry and Tracy for letting me join in on all the Halloween fun, and now, on with my story. You could say Deke Slayton was a man who spent his entire life with his head in the clouds. During World War II, he became a decorated combat pilot, flying missions over Europe and Japan, then later on to become one of America's first astronauts and test pilots. Deke dedicated his life to trying to go faster and fly higher. Nothing could stop Deke Slayton from taking to the skies. Some say, not even death. He was born Donald Kent Slayton in Sparta, Wisconsin in 1924. He first got his wings in April 1943 when he flew dozens of combat missions over Europe and Japan in World War II. Following his first stint in the military, he got a job at Boeing, studying aeronautical engineering. He did that for two years before joining the Minnesota Air Guard in 1951.
From there, he joined the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, where he learned to fly the fastest jets the military had to offer. But Deke always had his sights set on the next horizon, the next big opportunity to fly where no one had ever gone before. In 1959, Deke got his big chance. That was the year he was selected for NASA's Mercury program. The Mercury program was one of the stepping stones that would lead to NASA's ultimate goal of putting a man on the moon. Mercury's mission was to prove that humans could function in zero gravity. Deke was only one of seven men chosen for the program. He was originally assigned to the first orbital mission, but at the last minute he was pulled from that flight and reassigned to the second mission instead. But because he'd been reassigned, he was forced to undergo another round of physical examinations. And that's when an Air Force physician expressed his concerns about a slight fluctuation in Deke's heart rate. As a result, NASA scrubbed Deke from the Mercury mission entirely. He insisted he was healthy as a horse and totally ready for the mission. But nothing he could say or do could convince NASA to change their decision. Who had insult to injury? Deke had his flight status revoked, and for a time, he remained grounded. But Deke refused to let this setback keep him down. Following his reassignment, in 1962, Deke became the Assistant Director of Flight Operations for NASA, before being promoted to the full directorship four years later. But although his career was getting back on track, the one thing Deke dreamed of more than anything at all was getting back up in the air. He vowed to get in shape and do everything he could to regain his flight status. In March 1972, he underwent a new set of physical exams, which he passed with flying colors. And after that, his flight status was reinstated. The first thing Deke did to celebrate was take a T-38 training jet up in the air and show off by performing some hot dog aerobatics over Ellington Air Force Base in Texas. Then in 1975, Deke's dream of going into outer space finally came true when he became the captain of the crew of the Apollo-Soyuz test project. The Apollo crew launched into space on July 15, 1975. Deke and his crew spent nine days in space docking with the Russian Soyuz spacecraft for 44 hours. It was the crowning achievement of his flight career. After Deke returned to Earth, he stayed on with NASA, moving into an administrative position where he helped build the first space shuttle. Deke Slayton finally retired from NASA in February 1982. But the sky was Deke's home, and even though he retired, he refused to keep his feet planted on the ground for too long. He bought a powerful Formula One racing plane, and he loved to take it up in the air and show off his aerobatic skills. Deke hadn't lost a step. He could still make a plane dance through the air, taking it higher, faster, looping it through the sky with the greatest of ease. And that's exactly what got him in trouble on June 13, 1993. John Wayne Airport is a busy transportation hub in Orange County, California, just south of Los Angeles. It was the airport people used who lived in many of the outlying communities who didn't want to deal with the mass chaos at LAX. In 2012 alone, more than 8 million air travelers passed through John Wayne's gates. Hundreds of private pilots kept their planes there as well. All of which is to say that at 7.55 a.m. on June 13th, there were many witnesses who saw and heard a noisy red Formula One racing plane go buzzing over the airport. 
It was impossible to miss. Whoever the hotshot was behind the stick, he had some serious skills in the cockpit. The pilot spent the better part of an hour doing a bunch of crazy aerobatic loops and other stunts. This managed to seriously alarm many of the airport personnel on the ground. The plane was loud, for one thing, with its massive propeller setting off three airport area noise monitors. The pilot hadn't filed a proper flight plan, and he didn't respond to any of their hails either on the radio. Whoever he was and whatever he thought he was doing, his hot-dogging presented a major flight risk to some of the commercial planes taking off. But then, after several minutes, the pilot's little stunt show finally ended. The last anyone saw of the little red plane was it zooming off into some clouds, disappearing from sight. But before the plane zoomed off, several witnesses managed to take down the huge registration numbers painted on the plane's side, N21X, and reported the incident to the Federal Aviation Administration. It didn't take long for the FAA to trace the airplane as belonging to one Deke Slayton, war hero, former NASA official, and former Apollo astronaut. The FAA fired off a letter of citation to Deke Slayton's home on June 28th, but the response they received back wasn't at all what they were expecting. The person who responded to their letter of reprimand was Bobby Slayton, Deke's wife. She admitted that her husband did own a red Formula One racing plane, and that the plane did indeed have the registration number N21X. Her husband loved that plane dearly, and he did love to show off his aerobatic skills as well. But she also informed the FAA in no uncertain terms that it was impossible for Deke to have been flying his plane over John Wayne Airport in California on June 13, 1993. For one thing, Deke's family had donated the plane to a Texas Air Museum several months earlier, and it was currently sitting in the museum on display with the engine removed. But that wasn't the only problem, you see. On June 13, 1993, Deke Slayton died of terminal brain cancer in Texas at 3.22 a.m., just a few hours before his red Formula One racing plane was sighted flying over John Wayne Airport at 7.55 a.m. Hi, Jerry. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me on your Halloween special. Hello, everyone else. I am Father Sin. I'm from The Sinful Show. That's sinful with a Y. I hope you all enjoy this short story. The rainy season began in early summer, and June had been no exception. It did not surprise a man when he discovered rainwater dripping from his dining room ceiling. Shrugging it off, he placed a tall pot beneath the leak and expected it to stop on its own. However, it continued to rain, and before he knew it, the pot would threaten to overflow. He had to dump the water out first thing in the morning, and straight after he returned home from work. Eventually, he began to notice water damage at the source of the leak. The white ceiling had discolored, turning a dull shade of brown. 
He checked the weather and realized that it would continue to rain sporadically over the next ten days. The man was worried about the sealing, mildewing, and becoming an expensive repair, so he called a, a local handyman. Unfortunately, the man could not sign to have the repairs done. Only his landlord could. It was a frustrating policy. The man called his landlord, but could not reach him. He left him a few voicemails, detailing how the damage was becoming progressively worse. The man was clueless as to why his landlord would not return his calls. They usually kept in touch, speaking at least twice a month. Finally, he reasoned that he would not be held accountable for any damages sustained. One night, the man was startled awake by a massive thump. He quickly turned on his bedside lamp, and just vaguely, he could see an, see an overturned table and a large shape laying across it. He sprinted out of his apartment and called the police, gagging at the smell. The man sat in the police station with a blanket wrapped around his shoulders and a coffee mug resting in his hands. He did know one thing. There had been a dead body in the ceiling, and the water had saturated it so badly that it caved under the weight. So far, the body was unidentifiable due to the rainwater and was being autopsied. While the man waited, he called his landlord and finally reached him, panicking as he explained the situation. His landlord was just as alarmed, and the man pleaded for him to come to the station while he made a statement. The man paused as a detective crossed over to him, and he lowered his phone, wondering if the body had been identified. His blood ran immediately cold, and he shook his head with terror. The body belonged to Richard Thompson, his landlord, and he had died over a year ago. That's not what disturbed him the most. If his landlord was dead, then who is pretending to be him? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Crypt Podcast. This is Tucker, and as always, I'm joined by Shannon and Alex. Actually, Tucker, this isn't really an episode. It's just a bit for the Halloween episode over at uh, Hillbilly Horror Stories. Yeah, we're just kind of introducing our podcast and then telling an original horror story. Really? So I guess we aren't going to open with a horror news segment like we usually do then? Nope. Shame, too. I really want to talk about the teaser trailer for Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. Do you think Jamie Lee Curtis is too old to do a full frontal? God, I hope so. 
So you're telling me all of the research I did for this week's episode was just a waste of time? Great so, man. And this carefully curated outline and eight pages of 12-point single-space Times New Roman print on why the Dyatlov 9 were most definitely killed by a Yeti and then the entire incident swept under the rug and a giant Russian cover-up was all for nothing. I mean, I guess so, yeah. Wait, do you actually think it was a Yeti? I hate Yetis. (sighs) Well... When you aren't listening to Jerry and Tracy here on Hillbilly Horror Stories, check us out at the Black Crypt Podcast, available wherever podcasts are found. You can listen to our hour-long episode as we actually discuss the Dyatlov Pass incident or any other of the topics that we've tackled on the show. Feel free to check out our other segments, too. We have interviews discussing real-life paranormal encounters on Booze and Booze, horror video games on the Horror Cabinet, Reviews of movies available on streaming services over at Scream Streams and even a YouTube page to check out. So you can even look back into the Black Crypt podcast archives if you are the type that's more interested in hearing original horror stories. And speaking of original horror stories. Sit down. It's time for a story. Halloween is by far my favorite holiday. Thanksgiving, Easter, St. Patty's Day, nothing even comes close. Even Christmas doesn't hold a peppermint spice-scented candle to good old All Hallows' Eve. (laughs) What makes it so great, you say? (laughs) I should ask you what part of Halloween isn't great. The costumes, carved gourds, lit with candles, trick-or-treating, ah, the wonder of it all. But by far my absolute favorite part of Halloween must be the candy. Oh, the candy! (laughs) You see, I'm quite the connoisseur of treats. Back in the old days, you had the classics, of course. Caramel apples, popcorn balls, and even good old-fashioned candy corn. My, how those times were simpler. Not like nowadays where everything must be bought from the store and individually packaged for the safety of the children. Try to avoid peanuts and other allergens, of course. Gluten-free is best and include a nutritious option if you can for the more health-conscious of the ten-year-olds. Bah! Can you imagine the reaction one would get if you even tried to offer a child a delicious homemade snack? Why, the outrage would be palpable. Don't think me a bitter old man, though. I do enjoy the multitudes of candy available these days as well. As a matter of fact, I'm quite partial to Butterfingers. Snickers and Milky Way are fine as well, Although, I find they melt a bit too quickly at times. The same holds true for most chocolate-based candy, I supposed. By the time the child has chewed and swallowed the morsel, it's basically just chocolate syrup in their belly. Meaning, by the time I get past the little devil's abdomen... And into their stomach, there is hardly anything left for me 
at all. I must admit, it may be easier for me to enjoy Halloween candy before the children eat it, but it just doesn't have the same flavor. Once those sweet sugars have a chance to really mix with the savory, meaty bits of the child, oh, <laughs> I couldn't possibly explain to you the explosion of flavors in my mouth. It really is quite wonderful. Do you know why trick-or-treaters began wearing masks all those years ago? <laughs> it's silly when you think about it. They believed that if they disguised themselves as ghosts and demons and all other manner of beasts that go bump in the night, it would confuse the real devils, and they would be left alone to their celebrations. I suppose it did confuse us at first, but not for the reasons they believe. The rest of the demons and I just sat back and laughed until our sides hurt at the sight of humans walking around in poor similes of our faces. We aren't even so different, humans and demons, that is. Well, in appearance at least. I suppose that's why it's so easy to collect my candy on Halloween. No one suspects a kindly old widower of such things. I know what you're thinking. If you only eat candy, you'll get cavities. <laughs> well, don't worry. No part of the trick-or-treater goes to waste. I have not one but two large ovens at my disposal, which stay hot for the most part of a week following Halloween. I enjoy a good roast as much as I do a Twizzler. You'd think with all of the missing children reports in the area, someone would have come knocking on my door asking questions at some point, but each year the little costumed brats push and shove up my doorstep, bags held out at an arm's length. Oh, well, speak of the devil. I'm sorry, but you'll have to excuse me now. We don't want to keep the little ones waiting, do we? <laughs> help! Help! Somebody help me! Help! Help! Oh, Billy. Hush now, my boy. I'll be with you soon enough. Why not enjoy some more of that candy I've left down there with you? So impatient children these days. <laughs> We'd like to say thank you to Hillbilly Horror Stories for including us on your Halloween special this year. We hope that you enjoyed our story and... Of course, we hope that everyone's having an extra spooky Halloween season. If you enjoyed our little segment, come and join us on our own podcast for our regularly scheduled programming. So we hope you'll join us at the Black Crypt Podcast. And make sure you check us out wherever your podcasts are. GG. Thanks. Good day. Bye. See ya. Did I have another line or no? I no. I think we're done. I think we're good. Yeah. Black Crip Podcast.
Hi everybody, my name is Tessa Morrow and in April of this year, I joined Jerry and Tracy in the podcaster world and I have Paranormal Prowlers podcast. Now, I've been investigating the paranormal for well over a decade, but have been obsessed with it since, believe it or not, age two. While I have a plethora of encounters, experiences, and odd and eerie moments with the paranormal and supernatural, the story that I'm about to tell you isn't mine at all. Doing what I do, I've had many people, strangers, loved ones, friends, acquaintances, family, and so on, tell me about their paranormal happenings. My dear aunt, Mary Bird, told me about something she encountered long ago. I was so intrigued by this true event that I included it in my very first book, and I want to share it with you, ghouls. Today, my Aunt Mary Bird, she's an EMT, among many other things. She helps people. She's there comforting people on their worst day of days. It's what she does best. She's been doing this for decades. And she is not alone. Her children, my cousins, range from firefighters, law enforcement, dispatchers, and EMTs. True heroes. The story I'm about to tell you on this spooky Halloween evening is a true story. A event that took place decades earlier in the San Luis Valley in the mountains of gorgeous Colorado. Now back then, my aunt was just a teen, around 18 or so, and even then she was helping people. She was working at the hospital and the nursing home in a sweet little town called Del Norte. She was working the graveyard shift, 11 to 7. Now I must mention, she didn't live in town. She was a good 20 minutes away. So... On this particular night, she's driving to work. Now today, if you go through the area, the speed limit is 55 miles per hour. But back then, the speed limit was 75. So she's going a pretty good speed. She's driving. She has some tunes on, getting ready for a long night of work at the hospital. She's driving through an area that is known as Plaza Hill. Now, I must mention that Plaza Hill is very, very eerie. The very few times that I've driven through there, what little people I saw stopped what they were doing only to stare at me. I felt like I was kind of in the twilight zone, not going to lie. Later, I found out through my aunt that witchcraft and black magic is practiced in this area from way back and today as well. And if you're not Mexican, Hispanic, Spanish you get the drift, then you're not welcome there. No wonder they were staring at me. In later years, my aunt would encounter other strange things in Plaza Hill, and I'll mention those in a few minutes. So she is driving past Plaza Hill, going close to 80 miles per hour, when suddenly out of nowhere, this huge owl just appears. And in her words, she said to me, this owl hits my windshield dead center. The wingspan totally covered the windshield, and I couldn't see a thing. It just flew off. My windshield didn't break or anything. And it should have broke. I was going 75 miles an hour. It should have done some damage, but it didn't. At all. It was in the middle of the night. I was too chicken shit to stop and check. I was just grateful that my windshield was okay. Okay, so the rest of the drive, thankfully, is uneventful. She arrives to work shaken, but unharmed. There's no taking a breather at the hospital slash nursing home. As soon as she arrives, they pull her off the nursing home floor and put her straight to work in the hospital. 
as they were shorthanded on that night. Mary Bird starts her shift, and the uneasiness starts to kind of fade away. You know, it's still there, mind you, but work is always a good distraction, especially when you work somewhere like a hospital. Well, 45 minutes into her shift, an ambulance arrives at the emergency room. Now, in the ambulance is an old woman named Dolores. The EMTs explain that they found Dolores laying on the side of the road along Interstate 160, right by Plaza Hill. Her injuries? They're serious. She has a broken leg, and it's a very obvious broken leg. No question, no doubt. So they get her checked in, they ran tests, they do x-rays on her shattered body, and they get her set up in a room and into a bed. Well, my aunt, she goes in there to check up on Dolores, and they start to talk. The woman only speaks Spanish, and my aunt, through marriage, is very fluent in Spanish. So they start conversing with one another. My aunt asks her if she's okay, and if she needs anything at the moment. And what she says next gives me the chills. She says, I look at her and I ask her, how did it happen? The accident. And she says to me, you ought to know you hit me. I was in total shock. I go, I didn't hit you. I didn't hit no lady. And she says, you hit me. Well, we're arguing about this. We're going back and forth. And I told her on my way from home going to work, I hit an owl in that area, but I didn't hit no human being. And she looks at me and says, you hit me, unquote. (laughs) Kind of creepy, right? This old woman, Dolores, was so excruciatingly confident that my aunt hit her with her car. And that's why she was lying hurt on the side of the road. Well, my aunt was equally confident. Like, lady, I hit an owl, not a person. I can tell the difference between an animal and a human being. Hello? Shaken up with this odd encounter with this even odder woman, my aunt's shift is finally complete. She wants nothing more than to get the heck out of there and go home. So remember, it was the graveyard shift. It is now the following morning and she is in her car on her way back home. She stops at the right turn to go to Plaza Hill. She gets out of her car, walks into the field, and walks onto the side of the road. She explains the scene. I walked in the field and on the other side of the road, I walked up and down, not a single feather, nothing, you know, nothing at all. You can see in the grass where there was an indentation of where somebody was lying. Aunt Mary Bird returns to work the following day. Her interest and curiosity highly peaked. She talks to one of the EMTs on the call to pick up Dolores. She asks him, where exactly did you guys find Dolores? She soon realized through this conversation with the EMT that she was found right in the spot where earlier she saw that indentation. That's where the crew found Dolores. You guys, that is the same area where my aunt hit that huge owl. Believe it or not, they become friends, Dolores and my aunt. They would visit and talk. My aunt even met Dolores' family, including her sons and daughters, nieces and nephews. When Dolores finally was able to leave the hospital, she asked my aunt if she could accompany her back to her home to help her get settled and whatnot. Well, of course, my aunt, who enjoys helping people and those in need, said yes to this elderly woman's request. They took her back home via ambulance, and my aunt showed Dolores' family the things that they had to do to help her get stronger and recover. During this, they became good friends, and they remained friends. Around four years later, my aunt noticed that, hey, Dolores, she's not doing very well. She actually has a hole in her leg, like literally a hole, a through and through. Dolores kept persisting that it was nothing, that she would be okay, she's fine. Well, she ended up getting gangrene due to that horrendous wound. She admitted to my aunt that 
this will probably be the end of her. And even though it probably would have saved Dolores' life, she refused amputation. She wouldn't let anybody near it. And she was right. That was the end of her. That wound, that gangrene, that took Dolores' life. Now, after Dolores' sudden death, Aunt Mary Bird was asked by the family if she could help them, you know, get the house ready for sale, clean it up and stuff. Of course, she said yes. Going through her late friend's possessions, my aunt and the family noticed that Dolores had a secret fake wall in one of her closets. They opened this fake wall section, this hidden door, and they found a bunch of black saints in the secret room. Now, that wasn't the only thing they found in this mystery room. There were a bunch of books, all in Spanish, of course. One book was about black magic, titled The Book of the Black Hand. And in Spanish, it was called... <laughs> And I apologize in advance for butchering any words as it's been several years since I took Spanish. The book is called Le Libra La Mano Negra. There was another book that caught my aunt's eye and made all too much sense. Como Camiel Animal, meaning how to change into an animal. My aunt's reaction, she said to me, I was amazed. This book explains that they can change into cats and owls, dogs and rocks. You know, all this shit. I tripped out. My aunt shared with me that she has no doubt that on that fateful day that she was shot, that Dolores was perhaps a rabbit or something and was shot by a hunter. And after this happened, after recovering that secret room, she would hear Dolores from time to time saying her name. She once told me that she got in the car and she has this habit, you know, she'll look around in the car before getting in so she could make sure that nobody's there. So one night she gets in the car getting ready to leave work when suddenly she hears her name. The voice came from the back seat and it was Dolores's voice, you guys. To this date, this is still one of my favorite stories that has been told to me. It chills me to the bone every single time. So I hope you enjoyed it as well. Fast forward decades later, after my aunt's encounter with the animal transforming witch or bruja, my aunt is driving the ambulance on a call and going through Plaza Hill. And as they enter the area, the ambulance itself, well, it starts to malfunction. The wiring is going haywire. The lights are fading out. The radio is just not working. They are utterly shocked as this has never happened before. The lights were so dim they couldn't even work on the patient. As soon as they get out of plaza and back on the interstate, the sirens roar back to life. The lights went back on fully bright and the radio starts right back up. This is unacceptable. This won't work. How can they work and drive and help people if their unit isn't working properly? So the next day they brought the ambulance in to get a full checkup and there was not a single thing wrong with it. No faulty wiring, no shortages, not a single thing. San Luis Valley is a very active location, you guys, from UFO sightings to animal mutilations to demonic homes to succubus and incubus cases and so much more. And of course, can't forget the witchcraft and black magic. A big thank you to Hillbilly Horror Stories for including me in your very special Halloween episode. And folks, in November, keep a lookout for my second book as Jerry and Tracy have their own very chapter in it. For more info, email me. Paranormal underscore prowlers at AOL.com. Happy Halloween! the 1960s, while quietly sifting through dusty church archives in Udine, a small town in the province of Friuli in northeastern Italy, 
a historian named Carlo Ginsberg discovered a set of trial records that, upon closer examination, proved to be the greatest discovery of his career, the kind of which many historians only ever dream of finding. These records detailed a series of witch trials in Friuli from the late 16th to the early 17th century, which by itself would not be so interesting as the Inquisition was known to be active in Italy at that time. What made the story these records told so interesting was the fact that it depicted struggles between good witches and bad witches and gave indications of a widespread folk belief in spiritual warfare and supernatural abilities. The story began in 1575, when an area priest named Scabarizza learned that a local man, Paolo Gasparato, had given a charm to another man whose son was ill. Interested in whatever folk healing tradition was at work, Scabarizza spoke with Gasparato, and he got himself an earful. Gasparato explained that the boy was possessed by a witch, and the charm had saved him. This he knew because he was a quote-unquote vagabond, a benandante, or good walker, which meant he worked against the sorcery of malandanti, the bad witches. The priest Scabaritza was, of course, intrigued, as was the historian Ginsberg so many years later. So he pressed Gasparato for further information. The vagabond explained that it is known when a child is born with a call or membrane over his or her head that he or she will be a witch. But it remains to be seen whether he or she will be a benandante or a malandante. The benandanti are God's countermeasure against witchcraft, serving Christ the way witches serve the devil and foiling their evils. He told of some of the ways the vagabonds thwarted them, explaining that witches and warlocks would visit farmhouses and check the pails there. If the water in them was clean, they would drink it. But if it was dirty, they would go into the cellar and turn over their wine barrels or push foul things through their bungholes to spoil their wine. The benevolent vagabonds had to be there to stop them. Scabaritza was fascinated, but also concerned, for he feared that whatever magics these vagabonds wielded might come not from God, but rather the devil. As Gasparato continued to describe what it meant to be a benandante, though, Scabaritza began to feel better about the whole thing, for he suspected that it was all a tall tale or a dream. Gasparato explained that the vagabonds battled witches only during the ember tides, four certain times a year during which, according to the liturgical calendar, days are set aside for fasting and prayer. On Thursdays during the ember days, the Benandanti leave their bodies in a kind of astral projection, leaving their physical selves in a cataleptic state as though suffering sleep paralysis and their souls rode into battle atop small animals like mice and rabbits. These cute steeds, they rode into the clouds, where they must joust with the malandanti. 
This they did, armed with stalks of fennel, while their wicked opponents fought back with stalks of sorghum, which is thought to be what witches make their brooms out of. Gasparato said that their battles would determine the quality of the village's crop. If the Benandanti won, local farmers' efforts would yield a great plenty, and if they lost, the crop would be meager. Scabaritza became of the mind that these nocturnal journeys were perhaps nothing more than dreams and superstitions, but he took Gasparato to an inquisitor at a nearby monastery all the same. Gasparato gladly retold his story to the Inquisitor, but insisted that he could not share the names of his fellow vagabonds, for if he did, the witches would attack him. Upon their further investigation, Scabaritza and the Inquisitor managed to turn up one other man who believed himself to be a Benandante, a town crier in the nearby village of Cividale. But since there seemed no evidence that their embertide jousting actually occurred outside of some vivid dreams, and since they claimed to serve God and not the devil, the Inquisitor and Scabaritza chose to let the matter go. In 1580, five years after they had looked into the matter, another Inquisitor of the Roman Catholic Church named Montefalco, decided the investigation should be resumed and called Gasparato in for interrogation. This time, perhaps sensing a change in the attitude of his inquisitor, Gasparato denied it all, denouncing such vagabond activities that he had previously described as righteous, calling them now ungodly. Inquisitor Montefalco tossed him in a prison cell and went after the town crier next. And this self-professed Benandante told Montefalco everything, their embertide spiritual journeys through the clouds atop animals, their jousting with witches and warlocks over the fate of the town's crop. Montefalco therefore brought Gasparato back and confronted him again, and this time Gasparato admitted it explaining his previous denial by again stating that he was afraid of retaliation from the witches were he to reveal too much. Over the course of Gasparato's interrogations, he gave the detail that an angel of God visited him to call him to the life of a vagabond. But his inquisitors turned this against him, suggesting that this being surely was a demon presenting itself as an angel and that surely Gasparato and the other Benandanti were nothing more than witches and warlocks who had been fooled into believing they served God, when in fact the nocturnal journeys and jousting games they undertook were in reality black masses. While they thought they were battling the devil, they were in fact celebrating and worshipping him. Gasparato eventually came to believe this might have been true, and he broke down, naming other vagabonds. Over the next 50 years, the Inquisition would arrest numerous alleged Benandanti and denounce them as heretics, and those Benandanti in turn would accuse others of being the evil witches with whom they had done battle in the clouds. Centuries later, in the 1960s, the historian Carlo Ginsberg 
believed that he had stumbled onto more than just a strange story from the Inquisition. He asserted that the unusual folk tradition of the Binondanti hinted at an ancient and widespread practice of nocturnal spirit journeys. He pointed to Siberian shamanistic beliefs and to Central European folk customs, such as the Pirtenlaufen, in which townsfolk would form two groups, one wearing beautiful masks and the other wearing ugly masks, and would battle each other with sticks. He also looked to the Baltic region, where in Livonia in 1692, an octogenarian man named Thies was put on trial as a werewolf and described his actions in much the same way. Thies confessed to being a werewolf, but claimed he was a good werewolf, as it were, because he was a quote-unquote hound of God. This meant that he and other hounds of God traveled to hell and battled the witches who served the devil. Beyond the surface similarity, there were numerous other parallels between Thies's claims and those of the Binondanti. Thies said the hounds of God only made their journeys a few times a year, not on ember days, but on other church holidays, and that they beat the witches with rods, not of wood, but of iron, and that the success of the local crops depended on their success in battling the witches, who steal the blessing away from the seeds. Like Gasparato, Thies was also known to practice folk magic, acting as a healer and offering blessings and charms. In the end, if his claims of serving God were meant to avoid condemnation, it didn't work. Believing that he sought to lead godly folk away from the church, his accusers flogged him and banished him to live out his days as an exile. Ginsberg saw in this story proof of the existence of the Binondanti, or at least proof of the existence of a widespread tradition with similar beliefs. For some vagabonds in northern Italy spoke of transforming into animals during their night battles, rather than just riding animals. Other scholars criticized Ginsberg for his methods and assumptions claiming there is no concrete evidence that this tradition represents the survival of some massive pre-Christian fertility cult. But it certainly is an entertaining idea that long ago in the ancient past, some men and women were born to be sorcerers, chosen to ride the spirits of animals or to take the form of an animal once a year to battle evil on some unearthly plane. Think, for example, of the ancient beliefs reported by Herodotus and Pomponius Mela that there was a tribe of people called the Neuri who transformed into wolves once a year. Could this have been a reference to these ancient fighters of witches, these hounds of God? Could these good sorcerers have survived from antiquity all the way to the 18th century? And if so, might they remain among us even today, secretly working to protect the world from the dark magic of hell's minions?
If you enjoyed this tale and want to hear others of its kind, exploring the blind spots in history, the mysteries of the past, the hoaxes and conspiracy theories, and claims of the supernatural that make history so intriguing and puzzling, listen to Historical Blindness wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Halloween! Hello. Hi. I'm Tom. I'm Andrea. This is We Drink and We Know Things. The podcast. We are a comedy podcast. But we talk about all things spooky, paranormal, true crime, conspiracy theories, all that good stuff. And really quickly, we just wanted to say thanks so much to the folks over at Hillbilly Horror Stories, Jerry and Tracy, for having us out this evening. For inviting us to be a part of this big Halloween spectacular episode. We're so excited to be a part of it. This evening, we are going to be telling you the story called Something Comes Into My Room Every Night by Stephen Gray of Lighthouse Horror, and you can find more of his work at Lighthouse Horror on YouTube. And this is a creepy pasta. Yes. Let's do this. When I was seven years old, my mother and I moved to a small town in Massachusetts. It was a rough time for me as my father had just up and left a few weeks before. My mom told me that he had taken a better job somewhere. She told me that he still loved and cared about me, but even at such a young age, I understood that he had left us. It was Halloween week, and I started at my new school on the 25th of October. As a stubborn seven-year-old, I insisted on walking there myself. My mother frowned, thought it over, then agreed with one caveat. All right, as long as we walk the path together every night before school starts, and you promise to stay on the trail... She had bought a small two-bedroom cottage less than a mile from my school, so it wouldn't be far. It was a nice little place, but I guess with my father gone, nothing could really feel like home. The evening before I began school, the two of us walked into the forest behind our house. Although the sun had started to set, the path was clearly lit. What a perfect way to school. Can you believe this house was still available? She said. I nodded, but said nothing. We used to have family here, you know. I really like this place. My mom said, smiling. The next morning, I made my way into the kitchen and was greeted with a warm smile and pancakes. As I sat down to eat, my mother must have noticed that I looked nervous and sat down next to me. Don't worry, you'll make friends here. I have a good feeling, she said. I made my way down the path just as we had practiced every night. When I arrived at the school, a tall teacher with thick glasses greeted me at the door and helped me into the classroom. I sat down among ten other students, and the teacher began to speak about what the year was going to be like and what we would learn. No one was mean to me or anything, but no one really spoke to me either. All the kids were so busy talking about their costumes for Halloween that they barely even noticed a new kid there. There was this one little girl, though, that said hello. She sat two rows back from the other children, and I figured that maybe she was new to school as well. She was very pretty with brown hair and glasses. And as I glanced back, she caught my gaze and gave me a big smile. I tried to smile back, but she was so pretty that it was hard to not be shy. Turning back around, I tried to listen to the teacher, but I was really just thinking about her. School ended for the day at 3 o'clock. I grabbed my bag and rushed outside towards the path to my house, very anxious to run home and tell my mom about the pretty girl that had smiled at me. Hurrying home down the path, I suddenly tripped over something and I fell hard scraping my knee. Sitting up to examine my injury, I looked back to see what had made me stumble. 
I saw the biggest crow I had ever seen. Strange, too. What was wrong with its eyes? As I made my way closer to examine it, I heard something behind me. Hello? I know you from school, she said. Surprise, I look up quickly to see the pretty girl from class. Wondering if she had seen me fall, I was embarrassed and got to my feet quickly. My knee hurt pretty badly, but I was more worried about how I looked to her. Uh, yeah, I think I saw you in today in class. My name is Jimmy, I said. Smiling back, she replied, I'm Margaret. We walked together down the trail. How's your leg? she asked. Oh, it's okay, I said, trying to act tough. You live down here too, huh? She told me that her family had lived in this town for some time, and that she also had a path behind her home leading through the forest to the school. We were instantly friends. As we got to my house, she surprised me by asking, Can I see what your house looks like? You made it sound so nice. I quickly smiled and knocked on my front door. My mom answered, very surprised to see Margaret next to me. Smiling, she said, Well, you don't waste time making friends, do you, Jim? Are you going to introduce me to the young lady or just stand there? My face turned red as I muttered out, This is Margaret, she lives around here, and we met at school today. Trying not to show my excitement, I acted cool. She wanted to come over, I said. Hello, ma'am. I wanted to see your house. My family lives here, too, Margaret smiled and said. Come on in, dear. I just this instant finished a batch of cookies, my mom replied. As the three of us sat around the kitchen table talking, we got on the subject of Halloween. What are you going as, Margaret? my mom asked. I'm going to be a witch this year. I heard they are scary, Margaret said. Witches aren't scary, I quickly stated. Smiling again, Margaret corrected herself. Well, I was going to go as a witch, but my family is out of town this weekend, and I don't really... Well, I don't really have a place to stay yet. It's a business trip, and they said I'm too young to go with them. They asked my regular babysitter, but she got sick yesterday, and now... Well, if it's all right with your parents, you would be more than welcome to stay here over the weekend and go trick-or-treating with us. It was at that moment I realized that I literally had the best mom in the world. What do you think, Jim? My mom asked, holding back a smile. Yeah, that's a great idea, I said. My mom drove Margaret home to meet her parents and asked them permission for her to stay at our home over the weekend. When my mom got back, I asked her how it had went. It went great, my mom said. I think her mother and aunt take care of her. They live in a beautiful little cottage down the trail. They invited me in and we talked for quite a while. Both of them thought it was a great idea. I do have one question, though. You have a crush on this girl, correct? Pretending I didn't hear her, I quickly ran over to my room and closed the door. Got homework. Love you, I said, a little embarrassed. That night, I tried to sleep but was too excited for Halloween. It was just a few days off and I had already made a friend. This weekend was going to be great. Thinking about how this might really be a new start, I began noticing something in the corner of my room. At first I thought I was dreaming, but then slowly my eyes began to focus. There was a tall man with long dark hair and a gray beard. His eyes were piercing and focused. They stared unblinking out the window. My body started to tremble in fear. I hid under the blankets pretending it wasn't real and praying he hadn't seen me. Peeking out from under, I almost screamed out in terror. He was just floating there, holding a huge axe with what looked like blood on it. I wanted to scream and run out of the room, but I was frozen. I couldn't make a sound. I don't know how I fell asleep, but when I woke the next day, he was gone, and it was like it had never happened. 
I wanted to tell my mom, but I just couldn't for some reason. I don't know why. The week went by quickly, except for every single night, the man in my room would return, always holding the large axe in his hands. Some nights, he would just peer out the window, and other nights, he would pace back and forth. I could see his mouth move, but no words came out. I watched him in fear and awe, and the night before Halloween, he finally turned his head and looked directly at me. He locked eyes with mine, and he took a step forward. I pulled the blankets over my head and started to shake in fear. Was this real? Was I going crazy? Halloween day came, and I almost told Margaret about the man in my house. I felt guilty for not telling her, but I was afraid she would think I was crazy or something. And looking forward to this weekend was the only thing I had been happy about in some time. Margaret and I went house to house that night. I tried to have a good time, but wondered what was going to happen tonight when she stayed at my house. Would the man come again? Would he see her? She asked me what was wrong, and I pretended it was nothing. As we got back to my house, my mom had prepared a sleeping space for us in the living room. Margaret was going to sleep on the couch, and I had a blanket spread out on the floor. We compared candy, both agreeing we were tired. My mom was sleeping in the next room and told us to wake her if we needed anything at all. That night, as Margaret and I went to sleep, the wind started to howl against the windows. I told myself that I had never seen the man outside of my room, and I thought we would be safe here. I felt guilty, but it was just so nice having a friend with me at night. I couldn't face him again alone. The storm became louder and louder as the clock struck midnight. Staring at the ceiling, I was starting to become more tired when I heard Margaret ask, Jimmy, are you awake? I'm up, I said. I can't sleep. It's freezing. Do you have another blanket? She asked. I told her I had one in my room, then froze, realizing what I had just said. I would have to go back into my room. Searching for any other option, I knocked on my mom's door for blankets, but she didn't reply back. The storm was so loud that even knocking didn't wake her. I thought about yelling her name, but realized how childish that would make me look to Margaret. Didn't you say you had a blanket in your room? She asked again. I took a deep breath and replied, Yes, I'll get it for you. Opening the door slowly, I saw no sign of any ghost or monster. I held my breath and quickly ran over to the far closet to find an extra blanket. Fumbling through my clothes, I paused as I heard the door close behind me. The wind now almost shook the house, and it took every ounce of my courage to turn around. There was no ghost, though. It was just Margaret. Oh, it's just you, I said. Margaret smiled and replied, Who are you expecting? The boogeyman? It was then I noticed that something was off about her. As she locked the door behind her, I realized she was taller than before. Much taller. With the door closed, it was very dark in my room. But were her eyes... red? I thought I could see two small red dots looking back from where her eyes should be. She laughed and softly said, You shouldn't have let me in, Jimmy. Margaret? This isn't funny, I stammered. I find it very funny, she said. As she made her way across the room, I saw a large knife in her hand. The moon shone across her face, and what was once a beautiful young girl was now an old, haggard-looking woman with a hideous smile on her face. Want a hug, Jimmy? she asked. I backed into the corner of my room and screamed out for my mother. She can't hear you, Jimmy. She's never going to hear you, Margaret said. 
Having nowhere to go, I watched her get closer and closer. I was so scared now that I couldn't even move. All I could do was watch as she lifted the knife over her head and smiled wickedly. What happened next I will remember for the rest of my life. Before she could bring the knife down, something caught her gaze. She looked over towards the window and sunk back in fear. She screamed out and fell onto the floor, trying desperately to run, but he had stopped her. Holding on to her with one hand, the tall man brought down the axe on her neck. She screamed in agony and fear, her neck now half off as she still tried to crawl away. Placing his foot down roughly on her back, he pinned her to the floor. He then brought the axe down hard again with both hands, severing her neck almost entirely. There was a strong pull and then a grisly ripping sound. I heard a horrible pop as the man pulled her head completely off her body. All I could do was watch as he opened the window and carried her body and head into the forest. Stunned, I looked out. I could barely see, yet I just stood there and watched until he disappeared completely. I tried waking my mother, but she couldn't seem to hear as I shouted her name. After I checked to see that she was safe, I went back into my room and just stood at the window. I think I was in some kind of shock. After a while, I heard her door open. Running over to her, I hugged her close. Good morning. Did you two have fun last night? She asked, seemingly having heard nothing. At a loss for words, I slowly just nodded my head. Tell Margaret that breakfast will be ready in two shakes. Is she still asleep on the couch? My mom asked. Uh, I replied, mumbling something about her mom already having picked her up. Then my mom went into the kitchen to start breakfast. I wondered what I would say if her parents did actually show up to collect her. In the unlikely event that her parents were human, they would probably be thankful she was gone. That year was the start of a new chapter of my life. I now knew that demons, witches, ghosts, evil things weren't just fairy tales. They were real. I'm older now, and I have a family of my own. My son was born a few months back, and I've never spoken a word of any of this to my wife. I've never found the right moment to tell her. One last thing. A few days after Halloween as a child, my mom had taken out a photo album and sat down next to me. I watched as she casually thumbed through the photos, and then I stopped her. Who is that man? I asked. Him? That's your great-grandfather, she replied. I stared at the photo. It was him. I slept better after that. I would still see him from time to time staring out my window into the darkness. Margaret wasn't the last evil thing I would come across. And I now worry about the safety of my newborn son. It's Halloween night as I stand over my son's crib and stare out into the shadows of the forest beyond. I can feel something coming for us, but they don't know one thing. We're We're not not alone. alone.